The White House has not released all of the details on its 2022 budget request, but enough is out so that federal contractors are starting to get the picture. Joining me with reaction to this and a couple of other recent developments, the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. Ms. Castro, good to have you back. Good morning, and thank you for having me. And I guess the lack of detail is what's most noticeable to you in the budget. So, Tom, one of the remarkable things is that this is a $6 trillion budget in total spending for the next fiscal year, and it's the most expansive growth in the federal government reportedly since World War II. That said, I've been looking at budgets now for 15, 20 years, and I'm also astounded by the lack of detail. And I'm looking forward to several of the hearings coming up on the Hill where federal officials need to defend this budget. I'm looking forward to getting a lot more detail than is what is presently in the documentation. Yeah, what are some of the details that you have not been able to find that you would normally look for first? So I come from a defense background, and so I always check out the defense budget justification documents first and foremost. And in them, I notice there is a drop in procurement. Let's take the Navy, for example. There is a procurement drop of just under 6% and growth in all of the other accounts, whether it's operations and maintenance, military personnel, infrastructure, research and development. But unpacking that and finding out exactly where the money is going is sort of a black hole for me. You know, these are budget documents that I've been looking, again, 15, 20 years, and I kind of know my way around navigating them. And where I would expect to find detail, I'm not finding detail. And that imprecision may not be unexpected. You know, this is a budget that's been delayed. There's been a lot of discussion behind closed doors within the federal government. But the fact that they've released this, um, I'm hopeful that we will get more information as people's feet are held to the fire, proverbially, so that we can get more detail. And of course, Navy procurement is probably more indirect to professional services council members than, say, cybersecurity, information technology spending. And I guess knowing that there is a rise in operations and maintenance budgets, that tends to be toward the professional services, too, in some cases. It does. And that's why when we look at increased operations and maintenance accounts or research and development test and evaluation accounts, that's really where our you know, 400 plus member companies really are unpacking this budget and finding that there are increases, but not being able to directly track them is a little bit frustrating for contractors at this point. So they really can't do the planning they would normally do to try to have a, an attack strategy for this budget. 100%. You know, businesses really like consistency. They like predictability so they can plan to it. And so when budgets like this drop and it's $6 trillion, you know, that number alone is sort of, um, exhilarating to think about, but without being able to unpack it, how do you plan for that? And that is something that every single contractor in the D.C. area and beyond is looking at. Right. A lot of those elements of that $6 trillion are beyond what we normally think of as the discretionary budget of $1.5 something, $1.52, I think it was, trillion. But also they have a lot of proposals beyond the non-discretionary traditional spending of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. There's this huge chunk that is more policy standpoint than real action standpoint. That's true. If you if you look at what comprises the $6 trillion, it is the discretionary budget. And we got the skinny budget now two months ago almost. That was about $1.5 trillion. But you've got a $2 trillion American Jobs Plan Act. And our contractors, the contracting community, is looking at infrastructure, roads, bridges, elder care, broadband. So that's the tech piece that you referenced earlier. And then there's also the $1.8 trillion American Families Plan Act, 
which talks about higher education, expanded childcare, healthcare. That's all very interesting as well. But when you look at what is provided in the discretionary budget and what might be available in the out years, and by that I mean beyond fiscal year 22, it's a little bit, again, of a black box and a little bit fuzzy. And I'm looking forward to hearing what people have to say about that. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And I want to bring in a different topic here because this is something that people in services can really glom onto, and that is the release of the solicitation for CIOSP4 from the NIH's procurement operation, NITAC. Uh, this is a big deal, isn't it? It is. And you mentioned tech earlier, and, and you know we had the cybersecurity executive order come out just about uh, two, three weeks ago. And, you know, trying to track in the budget where that cybersecurity or information technology money is going. But in the near term, this is a long anticipated, long awaited, much ballyhooed, for lack of a better word, I'm using my old fashioned words here, CIOSP4. It is a $50 billion RFP that was released last week for a broad range of IT services. It was delayed reportedly because of clearance from the Small Business Administration. And so looking at it going forward, how will bidders respond. The deadline is June 28th. Looking at about, you know, several factors, health, IT capability, management approach, past performance price, and that is just to get past phase one and moving forward into being considered a real contender for this large RFP. All right. And there is related to both of these things. The government needs the money that it's going to have to borrow to do any of this, which is most of the money that it's spending. And so the debt ceiling reset two months away now, and golly, there doesn't seem to be a lot of thought about that right now on the Hill. This is an area of surprise for both our president and CEO, David Berto, and and the rest of the PSE staff. The debt needs to reset on August 1st, and there's been very little chatter about how our government plans to get past that. Now, if you ask what happens on August 1st, that's the date where we start to run the risk of a national default on America's debts. And that event would have unknown but likely catastrophic impacts. The Department of the Treasury has some extraordinary measures, and they're extraordinary in that they get called into play in situations like this. Normally, they'd have a two, three, four-month runway after that date because of spending and because of the amount of money we've put towards COVID and other national emergencies. They may have four to six weeks, not three to four months. And that is a huge driving factor, or should be, and having congressional folks talk to each other about what they're going to do for the debt. All right, so something to keep in what you might call the tickler folder, to use another old-fashioned word, but yeah, that (laughs) one's not so much a tickler file as a bite if uh, they don't do something about that by August 1st. Seriously, August 1st is one of those dates where, you know, if we could also get a budget deal for fiscal years 22 and 23, but for this point, I'm just happy if they (laughs) they would reset the debt uh, ceiling so that we don't have to incur everything that comes with defaulting on a national debt. Yeah, maybe they could set it like the cicadas so that they don't have to worry about it for the next 17 years. (laughs) It could disappear underground for 17 years. And finally, PSC is looking at the issue of federally funded research and development centers, FFRDCs, and that they are being used perhaps for projects that are best done by the private sector. So FFRDCs were created and are often used for basic research and other issues that the private sector can't help with. But in recent years, it appears that much more work has been sent to FFRDCs that could be done more efficiently and perhaps more effectively by the private sector. And so this is an area we're watching closely. There was a requirement in the FY21 
DOD Appropriations uh, Act or the section of the omnibus bill that was passed that asked for a report. Um, and now that the new appropriations uh, cycle is starting, it's important to have that information before we start wondering whether we should increase reliance on FFRDCs. All right. Lots to think about these days. It's a uh, turbulent time. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. 
And and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision, and overcoming barriers. And and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was a beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. 
not just for the title and the, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.